Hello and welcome to Ghostly Talk. The date today is March 8th, 2018. A lovely, snowy mm. Thursday evening here mm. in beautiful Michigan. Mm. Tonight... I want spring. Yeah, tonight we want spring. And that's it. We had a wonderful talk with a gentleman named Mr. John Stedman about the works of H.P. Lovecraft. What's the name of the book that he... H.P. Lovecraft and the Black Magical Tradition. So enjoy this. Stedman is a scholar of both H.P. Lovecraft and Western occultism and has been a magical practitioner for over 30 years, working with various covens and small groups of initiates. He has a Bachelor of Arts from Michigan State University. I can't talk tonight. <laughs> I know, I'm botching it. You're killing it. He's, I, sorry. A Master of Arts from the University of Virginia and a Master of Business Administration from the University of Wisconsin. So he's no dummy. He knows his stuff. Uh, I, yeah. This yes, guy's serious. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. serious. And then, also very interesting, in addition to his academic credentials, he holds the following degrees in the Ordo Templi Orientis, OTO USA. And so I'm going to have to ask him about that because I know Aleister Crawley has some stuff to do with that in the past and all kinds of fun things. John wrote a book called H.P. Lovecraft and the Black Magical Tradition. And this book focuses on uh, the modern practicing occultists have argued that renowned horror writer H.P. Lovecraft was in possession of in-depth knowledge of black magic. Literary scholars claim that he was a master of his genre and craft, and his findings are purely psychological, nothing more. But was Lovecraft a practitioner of the dark arts himself? Was he privileged this to is, knowledge yeah, yeah. that cannot be otherwise explained? Yes. Weaving the life story of Lovecraft in and out of an analysis of various modern magical systems, occult scholar John L. Stedman has found direct and concrete examples that demonstrate that Lovecraft's works, and specifically his Cthulhu mythos and his creation of the Necronomicon, can serve as a legitimate basis for a working magical system. Whether you believe Lovecraft had supernatural powers or not, no one can argue against Lovecraft's profound influence on the contemporary black arts and the darker currents of Western occultism. John, are you out there? <laughs> yeah, I'm out there. That was actually written by the publishing company to make oh. the book sound... Uh, no, really, seriously, yeah. it was written by them to make the book sound more, uh, you know, sensational. Uh, but I, I didn't actually write that. I sent that along with uh, my... Uh, that was a book description. On the yeah, back yeah, book. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I sent that along with my bio, you know, just in case you might need something sensational like that. You <laughs> used it, so that's great. Yeah, it sounds good. Well, no, you know, there is, at its core, you know, and we did some, we were doing some reviewing today on your book that you were nice enough to send over to us. 
Um, and that, and I mean, right off the bat, that's this is what this book goes out to do is is actually get into the idea that H.P. Lovecraft really walked the walk. I guess I don't know any other way to say it. Like he may have really walked the walk when it came to these ideas. And these this wasn't just a work of imagination. This is if and if, I'm, if I'm a little bit off here, call me on it. But this is kind of what I was getting from that is that this wasn't just some made. There may be more to what his stories were than just works of fiction. Am I, am, I, am, I, am I on the correct path with that, John? Well, the problem is that uh, he never really walked the walk, if you want to put it that way. Lovecraft was really a materialist. He called himself a mechanist materialist, and he was an atheist. He didn't believe in gods or goddesses at all. He would have actually been quite horrified to think that people actually took his uh, metaphysical concepts, concepts as uh, imaginative, constructs like the great old ones, these entities, and actually built magical systems around. He probably would have been horrified by that idea. He wouldn't have been too uh, bothered by it because he was always amused when people did stuff like that, but he would have been surprised, really, because he, he didn't believe in magic at all. He never practiced magic, and in fact, he got most of his ideas like about rituals and stuff out of sources like the Encyclopedia Britannica and from books lent to him by friends of his. He did read some magical documents, uh, some books like by Alephus Levi, uh, Arthur Edward Waite. He read uh, Margaret Murray's The Witch Cult in Western Europe. Okay. And I talk about all that in Chapter 2 of my book. But in that book, I specifically uh, argue that Lovecraft, I tell you everything that Lovecraft knew about black magic and about occultism in that chapter. And he was definitely not a believer. Really? I mean, that's super, that, uh, I, see, that's how I'm trying to get my head around this thing. Amber, you're, well, no, you're dying a, to say something here. It no, like. it's interesting, like what John just said, that he'd probably roll over in his grave if he knew that people were worshiping now and doing ritual spell work or whatever, which I know, John, you talk about that um, people, who was it? Was it Peter Lavenda or who was it that I was reading? Um let me yeah, look. the Dark Lord. Uh, Peter Lavenda is actually the same guy as Simon. Have you ever heard of uh, Simon's Necronomicon? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, the, it was published in the 1970s. Uh, I got one of the uh, limited edition copies. It's real beautiful, by the way, beautifully designed. But what he's the guy that first articulated the belief that uh, Lovecraft's entities, the ones known as the Great Old Ones, he called them, uh, he that those are actually Sumerian ent entities from ancient Sumer. And he, he has like a table of correspondences at the beginning of that book where he kind of shows like phonetic similarities between some of the Sumerian gods and goddesses and the names of Lovecraft's entities. But of course, anybody that has even an ounce of like logical training or philosophical reasoning powers, which I do have, by the way, uh, you can't make an argument like that. You know, just because a couple words phonetically sound similar, there are words from different cultures, different languages, and so it's just coincidental. But on the basis of that, he postulated this whole theory that Lovecraft was actually unconsciously in touch with Sumerian entities. And so Lovecraft's entities are real gods and goddesses. That's what he postulated. And then in that period of time, that was like around the 60s and 70s, other magical practitioners picked up on that, like Kenneth Grant, who was mm -hmm. for a long time the head of the... Uh, uh, Typhonian OTO in London. He picked up on it. And then Levand is probably, Levand, I'm not sure how he pronounces his name. He's probably one of the most recent ones to pick on, uh, up on it too. But yeah. Levand actually is Simon. 
you know, he's never come out and confessed it, you know, but there's a lot of documentary evidence that kind of proves that he actually was Simon, and the Simon is just a pseudonym, and he, he uses his own name when he writes his scholarly books like The Dark Lord, but in The Dark Lord, which is his most recent book, uh, okay. I think, unless he's got one in there since I've, I've checked, that was published in 2013, he still makes that old, tired argument that somehow Lovecraft was in touch with the same kind of entities that Aleister Crowley was in touch with. And quite frankly, there's just no evidence for it. Well, yeah, I mean, and even in like just, you know, kind of hammering through the book today, getting some ideas. I mean, Anton LaVey said the same type of stuff, though, didn't he? As far as that he may have had some type of contact with, with some type of occult contact. I mean, it's the same thing with Anton LaVey, right? Well, LaVey was where I discovered it. When I first started getting into magic, I was like in my late middle school and early high school period. We're talking about the late 60s and early 70s. And I discovered uh, LaVey around that time. And uh, I read the Satanic Bible. And then the one that I liked better than that was a companion volume, The Satanic Rituals. In that one, he has a whole chapter on uh, Lovecraft. And he has uh, two rituals that are based on Lovecraftian metaphysics. And the thing about LaVey is this, like, he believed you could use these rituals, but you got to understand something about LaVey. He's not like these other occultists. LaVey was an atheist himself. And yeah, so he, yeah. viewed, he viewed all gods and goddesses, including his uh, signature gods, Satan, Leviathan, uh, uh, Beelzebub, uh, Lucifer, and Belial were the kind of signature gods of the Church of Saint. I have a whole chapter on Lovecraft's influence on LaVey, by the way, in right. my book, so you'll understand the full connections there. By the way, in my book, and I'll get back to that type, that idea. By the by the way, in that book, in the latter half of the book, you'll notice I have six, six, uh, single chapters on Lovecraft's influence on the major black magical systems. And so I've got one on LaVey there. I've got one on Chaos Magic as well, you know. So, But LaVey basically viewed all of his entities as being personifications of powers that we have within us. And then when we do the magical rituals, we bring those powers out and utilize them. But they're powers that we already have. And so he would argue that Lovecraftian entities are like that as well. You know, they're not really ontologically existing entities, but they're just uh, uh, metaphors or symbolic, uh, symbolic representations of what we already have within us. You said you mentioned a second ago, and I and I mean, I've noticed this too. I that Lovecraft was he was an atheist, right? Completely. Um, so I guess you know why if you're if you're an atheist, would you? What? What, would why you, the hell are you yeah. creating gods and yeah. goddesses if you're an atheist, right? You read my mind. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why would you? I mean, I, I mean, I know it's kind of an open-ended question, and we can't get into this man's mind. But I mean, do you have any insight into this? <laughs> I, I do have some insight into that very much. You know, first of all, let's qualify something about Lovecraft. Uh, S. T. Josie, by the way, the copy of my book that I sent you didn't have the endorsements, but my actual book itself, I'm holding it right now. It's got like about 20 endorsements from around. Uh, different scholars, different science fiction writers and stuff. And yeah. one of those guys was S.T. Josie. He's yeah. considered number one Lovecraft scholar in the world. He gave me an endorsement, but he kind of had to grit his teeth a little bit because I have a lot of comments in my book about magic, which I believe in and utilize. And I'm certainly not an atheist, but he was a nice guy. He read the whole manuscript. And he, could grit, he gritted his teeth a little bit about the latter half of the book, but he kind of concentrated on like the details about Lovecraft's life and works, yeah. and then he gave me an endorsement. So he's really a sweet guy for doing that. Yeah. Some, and he's an atheist. 
And some atheists would just kind of dismiss this whole thing entirely as being completely repugnant. But Josie thinks that Lovecraft was a complete atheist. And there's a problem with that. Like, if you read Lovecraft's works very closely, he says many times that he's an atheist. And he says many times that he doesn't believe in gods or gods. But he also says in important parts in his uh, letters that he actually keeps an open mind about these kind of things. And that if he's given evidence or if our ability to understand the universe or perceive things in the universe widens to such an extent where we can become susceptible to other forms of life out there, then he's willing to change his mind. So Lovecraft was a bit of an agnostic. I was going to say, he's, he, yeah, he's more of an agnostic than he is an atheist, it seems like. Yeah, so he left open the idea that there could be, uh, he didn't extraterrestrial entities, you know, but he left open the possibility that we might encounter some sometime. And he felt the same way about uh, uh, entities, uh, magical entities as well. Now you ask, how can a guy like that still create gods and goddesses. It's not something people do. You don't see S.T. Josie out there making up gods or goddesses. My brother, I have a twin brother, he's an atheist. You don't see him out there making up gods and goddesses. So why the heck did he do it? Well, you got to remember something about Lovecraft. He was a very complicated, divided person. And I break him up into like two different kinds of Lovecraft. One of them was what I like to call the daytime Lovecraft. That was a Lovecraft that was an atheist and a materialist and believed in cosmic indifferentism and felt there was no such things as gods or goddesses. But there was another Lovecraft, the dark Lovecraft, the night side to Lovecraft. And this guy was troubled all of his life by these very powerful dreams. And he saw all sorts of things in his dreams. And uh, I would argue that Lovecraft was kind of like split right down the middle. And so what happened, he was drawn to the weird themes and uh, uh, odd things that he saw in his dreams. And then slowly he built up an appreciation and an attraction toward weird tales and weird literature. And then he developed a, a group of gods and goddesses or entities to kind of go along with what he was seeing in his dreams. And so that, if you looked at it from a rationalistic standpoint, it contradicts the other side of him. But let's face it, you know, a lot of people are like that. You know, they have this aspect to their personality, they have another aspect to their personality. And he was able to keep both of those together inside Lovecraft himself. He yeah. didn't go crazy. It didn't spill over or anything like that. And what's interesting, if you look at his entities, these are not conventional entities. And this is a problem that all these people like that stress the Sumerian theory and stuff. Sumerian gods and goddesses, and, and scholars don't know too much about ancient summer. I'm just telling you the truth about that. But those are... <laughs> Those are very westernized gods and goddesses. They're anthropomorphic. Yeah. They're glamorized. They're very much like the pantheons of Greece and Rome. You know, but Lovecraft, take a look at Lovecraft's entities sometime. His entities are thoroughly in accordance with visions of the quantum universe. There's nothing anthropomorphic about them. There's nothing human-centric about them. They're totally out there. So when Lovecraft created his entities, he created entities that conformed to his view, his quantum view, his quantum physics view of the cosmos. And there's nothing quite like them. You know, they're totally sophisticated. They're totally like 21st century right now, as opposed to these other types of entities that get, get a little stale over the years. I mean, it's a little yeah. stale, you know, this like uh, god Mars or something, or the Sumerian god Ishtar or something, who's kind of equivalent to the Venus... The mm -hmm. Aphrodite symbol. Yeah. They're a little stale, you know. I mean, they're 
been around for a long time. They kind of look like us. And people that don't believe in gods are gods that say, geez, they look just like us. Are we creating gods in our own image? Are we projecting our own image of what it's like to be human out into the cosmos? Which is exactly what the Greeks and the Romans did. And you could argue the Christians did that too. No, I you know, so, God, God, you know created, great, God created man in his own image. I mean, that's right. Simple as but that. When you look at Lovecraft's entities, they're totally different. No, they're gro a lot of them, they're grotesque. I mean, and, and going along with what you're saying about about the physics of, of his entities, yeah, I mean, we're familiar with, you know, and, uh, the bulk of them. And, yeah, they are. Some of this stuff is very grotesque, but the ideas are very grotesque. But going back to this idea, which I find really interesting, John, uh, you know, going back to the atheism thing, because, you know, obviously H.P. Lovecraft, he's a, he's a fundamental artist now. Um we, I mean, just thinking about this today or the last couple of days, the influence that H.P. Lovecraft really has had on modern art, film, music, more, more people who are writers. Um, it's, well, it's incredible. We, but, oh, sorry. Well, well, go, let me finish this yeah. thought because I don't want to forget this. Um, but what you're, but this, this thread we were on here, how an atheist can try, well, let's just be frank, a very open-minded, agnostic atheist, um, how... And what was said was that he's open-minded to the, the possibility of extraterrestrials, the possibility of magical entities. Um, I think that's such a cool idea because I have, I mean, we all have our own beliefs. I'm sure you have your own beliefs also, John. Um, and, I, and there are some things that I say, you know what, I think that's baloney. I, I think it's baloney. However, I, I like to imagine things. I'm an imaginative person. So even when I, I, I've said I've done this before, um, and, and the reason I'm saying this is I can totally identify with H.P. Lovecraft on this because, I mean, there are some things I've called baloney on, but I still wonder about them. And sometimes I've even written down ideas or I've conceptualized things in my own mind of what, well, what if that really did exist? What would it look like? What would it smell like? What would it sound like? You know, I mean, all those things. I can really identify with that, even though it sounds so unconventional, right? But... Go ahead, you John. know, a lot of people, when they're trying to imagine things, so they'll personify it because all they know is being human. Look at the Christian religion, okay? you got a man, Christ, who's actually viewed as a god, too, but he looks like a god. And when you see pictures of him, he looks like a very pretty man, very pretty god, right? Yeah, but yeah. Uh, ever since the Hebrews, they've always personified God himself, too. They'll say, well, God is formless, God's inside you, God's love. But look how they, like, I'm going to ask you right now, this is baloney. This is all baloney. I agree with you. All this is baloney, and it's all damn silly. And I'm going to get to that topic in a minute. But if mm -hmm. I ask you to kind of visualize in your mind right now what you think God looks like, I'm talking about Jehovah, the God of Abraham, the creator of the universe, the creator of the world, uh, as uh, outlaid in Genesis. What would you get in your mind if I asked you to visualize God right now? Give me what's in your mind. Initial, initial. I mean, I'm glad. Yeah, as, you're, right as, you're, as you're asking this question, I was, I was, I was, I mean, literally in my mind, I see constellations. That's oh, just what popped in my. That's just what popped in my head. I, that, that's just my, my thought process. I mean, well, something good. so massive. I mean, a force, <laughs> a, a vehicle and force so massive in our universe that literally it's just a part of the universe itself. It's just a part of the fabric of the universe. That's just kind of so my you, idea, though, right? Yeah, you don't personify him. Well, that's interesting. Most people that I ask that question, they kind of view him, and this is the way the Hebrews viewed him. They viewed him as kind of like a, a person with white hair, kind of like the Albus Dumbledore kind of figure, the white-haired, serene, 
silver bearded wisdom as they call it. Oh yeah, well, I, I, I think when I was, a, go ahead John. A male, a male basically, a big paternalistic male, usually in profile with the right side yeah. facing out because the right of course is man, the mm -hmm. man is good, positive, and women of course are evil, negative, so that's the left side, right? So it's going to be the right side out. But that's the way the Hebrews visualize it. And most people, I when I ask them about God, they tend to anthropomorphize him. He kind of turns out to be similar to Dumbledore or a Zeus or something like that. Oh, yeah. You know? I, and I totally get that. I, I think a younger me would have said that, right? But, you know, I've spent the last 20, 25 years thinking about stuff like this. And it's like, well, if you know, that's, I mean, I mean, it's not, it's not contrived. It's just when you were saying that, I'm like, well, you know, I think, you know, if there really is, not to get too philosophical, if there really is what we would refer to as a being or an entity named God, at least in our idea of what God is, to me, it's going to be something greater than that. Not just in the in in the shape of what we would consider what a man would look like. I think God is going to be something much greater and a much bigger force than that. And that's just kind of what I picture in my dumb brain is just this, you know, like stars, like the you know the the universe and stuff like that. This is just a part of. It may be, it may run the whole show. Who knows? But it's just this thing that's a part of the fabric of the universe. Maybe a little too philosophical. I'm sorry, <laughs> but well, but see, you're you're person, you're seeing it that way. You're not personifying, but yet you are still objectifying it. And the way that you're viewing it is based on how you view things yourself. Yeah. Now, the thing interesting about Lovecraft, you do it as planets or cosmos or something like that. The thing interesting about Lovecraft, he was in total accordance with modern quantum physics in this regard, they argue that uh, everything that we see, including the objects that are supposedly outside of ourselves, are actually still products of our subjectivity, they're part of our perception, and that we really can't see behind what we're seeing there, the out there, the nominal, the things that are behind that, we can't really see that, and so we don't really know what's beyond the veil of perception, any more than the Big Bang, like most people think, well, the world was created with the Big Bang. Maybe it was created that way. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was God creating it rather than the Big Bang. But let's think about that for a minute. The Big Bang is possibly is happening instantly, instantaneous, like a quantum effect, right? But what's behind that quantum effect? We can't. We never can know. We can never know that. You know. So there's a whole cosmos, and we're just imagining behind the Big Bang. And then there's a universe that we can see, where we can send at least devices out there to measure. But those two are a project, product of our subjectivity. So we, we, we really don't know what's going on behind the scenes, so to speak. We can speculate, but we really don't know. We never will know, at least in the form that we're in now, because of the immense radiation out there. Like if we got close to where the Big Bang supposedly happened, and we can find out where that is because there's a, a conflagration of... Uh, radiation at that point yeah and so yeah. We, we know it probably happened at that point but we'd be burned up instantly if we could even get that far so we don't know what's going on out there yeah, but everything everything that we do know is based on our own limited perceptions yeah we so, and that's so and that's such a cool i mean that idea you're saying right there it is fascinating because i mean yeah we wouldn't even be we wouldn't be able to probably get within parsecs of the of the you know the originating point of the big bang before being vaporized we couldn't get near that so really you're right we as these i i, I like saying dirty bags of water these these human us, us as humans which we all know the human body is relatively kind of weak and kind of kind of feeble and frankly we're not built to last right 
we can't only see so much because of our physical limitations in nature, right? So and we can't we can't prove anything. Like you could say, well, I believe in God. I know they exist. We can say that certainly if you want, but we don't really know what's beyond that veil out there, beyond our perceptions that kind of block us from experiencing that. So we really don't know what there is out there, and we have no reason for believing that it's a vast cosmos out there. We can determine that certainly. We yeah. have a vast universe. We don't really know what that is. We only know that we have perceptions of it. And so we cannot really project ourselves onto it if we want to be honest about ourselves. So everything that we project onto it is what you said before. And I'm going to get to this remark because I think it's an important one. You said it's baloney. You said this is all baloney, right? Everything that we're seeing out there, including the things that we send out into outer space to measure things, it's all baloney because we really can't. Uh, get any empirical evidence of what it is. Now, here's something interesting here about quantum physics. The quantum physicists have brought things down to the sub-atomic uh, level now, to particles, to yeah. particles. And they're finding that we really don't know what's going on there either. Like, the we go, and the closer we get to just particles, it gets crazy there, too. And our perceptions can't tell us much about what's going on at all. Mm -hmm. You know, they've done experiments and what they discovered that there's probably multiple multiple levels of perception and seeing and they're all equally real and they're all equally illusion and the ones that are real are the ones that we just simply selected like the the way that we're living right now we selected that for ourselves but there's an infinite number of ways that we could live mm -hmm. or be and we could have selected one of those just as easily but we didn't for some reason and nobody really knows why but the perception that we selected right now it's only going to last for us for just a short amount of time. You mentioned that before. The bodies were out. It's yeah. going to live for a little bit of time, and then it's gone. You yeah. know, and so they're they're discovering that the same problems we have perceiving out there are the same kind of problems we have perceiving right now. So whatever we're seeing right now, in essence, what we're doing right now, me sitting here looking at my screen here and talking on Skype with you, that's mm. baloney as well mm. because it's not lasting. We can't prove it. Yeah. Now that is justification for magic, and I, I'll explain that. But I'm going to give you a minute to, I'm going to give myself a minute to rest from saying all that for a minute. But <laughs> it's because I have a tendency. I'm a college professor. I have a tendency to drone on and on, and the <laughs> students are captive audiences. Yeah. You know, they signed up for the class, so they have to hear this crap. And I don't <laughs> want to inflict that on either you or the lovely Amber Rose. And so I'm going to just shut up for one minute. But think about that for a minute. Our perceptions out there and uh, into the inner and outer, the macrocosm and the microcosm, that our perceptions are baloney. It's, no, and I, I'm thinking about it. And I'm it going going on what you just said. This idea, this trip we're talking about here. Really, what do we, we don't really know anything. We don't. There's not much that we really know. Only by our limited scope of what we can observe. I think I. In speaking, you know, speaking from, you know, humankind, um, I think it's great that we as humans, we do want, we do have, I think, inside of us this yearning that we want to know how things work. I know the older that I get, every year that goes by, I am more of a curious person. I want to understand how the world around me works, all the way down to how I can fix the vacuum cleaner. If, I, if it breaks, right? I mean, just goofy things like that, but I'm always trying to learn and I'm always trying to understand how everything around me works at the lowest level possible. 
we've gotten down, what you said, John, is literally at the particle level, right? I mean, I, obviously, I don't have the means to go that deep. But I think we as people, that's one of the things that we have in our arsenal, I think, that does make us some, somewhat great is that we do have that yearning to, 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 to try to understand the universe around us, even though going on the conversation we're having here, it's kind of a hopeless cause because <laughs> we just don't, don't have know. the means to do it, right? I don't know. I don't know if it's hopeless or not. You know, I, 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 you know, we call it baloney and stuff like that, but just let's look at magic for a minute. Sure. Magic is a pretty silly thing when you think about uh, If you actually think about a grown man or a grown woman putting a robe on, going outside under the stars, and they've got things like sticks. They've got wands, they've got cups, they've got swords, pentacles, just yeah. these little objects. And they're out there waving these things around. They're vibrating words. They're uh, doing gestures. They, they're uh, evoking or invoking whatever they're doing. Yeah. Now, that's pretty damn silly. That is pretty darn silly, don't you think? Well, A grown I mean, man out there doing that. <laughs> that is silly, okay? I, I agree. Because, I mean, and in thinking about this, I mean, I know, Amber, this is something you're way more interested in than I am. Um, I've always considered magic not something I, I don't make fun of it. I don't put it down, but it's just something that I've looked at and all these amazing things I can study, you know, throughout life. Magic has been one of those things where I've just kind of veered away from that. It's just not because I hate it or I have a problem with it. It's just something that doesn't interest me, right? But look, at, look at these people out there doing that. There's one difference between them and the other people that sit in a Christian church. And I don't want to come down on Christianity because I'm open to all different paths. Yeah. I believe that if a person is a very devout Christian, they believe in God, they believe that Christ is their Savior, and they confess their sins upon their death. I think they'll go to heaven. I really believe they'll go to heaven. However, heaven is part of what we're perceiving. It's on this side of what we were talking about before. Oh. However long However long heaven's going to last, who knows? Who knows how long it's going to last? I believe that if you're a devout Buddhist or a Taoist or whatever you are, you'll go to where you're going if you're devout, but you have to do something. And this is where I take issue with a lot of the Christians. They don't want to do anything anymore. They want to go to church once a, once a week, and they want to be saved. They want somebody to do it for them. They want Jesus to do it for them, right? Now, compare this to the real world. What can you get in the real world by just relying on faith that somebody's going to do it for you. You're not going to get nothing. You're going to be a loser. You're not going to get anything unless you get off your butt and go out and work for it, right? Correct. The magicians, Correct. The magicians are like you. They're curious. They want answers to questions. They don't think it's hopeless. And so they're out there making fools of themselves under the <laughs> stars somewhere because they're trying to get some answers and they're not content with leaving it in the hands of somebody and saying, well, gee, I hope it all works out in the end. At least you're willing to do that. Yeah. But it, it's silly. It's very, very silly. And the reason why it's silly is because uh, it's silly mainly because uh, the tools themselves, you, you don't really see any link. You'll say, well, how does reading a wand or uh, reciting words, how does that actually get you to understand something? Or how does that get you into altered states of consciousness? Or how does that help you perceive beyond the veil? Well, quite frankly, this is something that no magical practitioner can answer. They can't answer. All they do is this. They say, well, we don't really know why it works, but these tools that we're using, these things that we're doing, there seems to be evidence that if we use these things, if we do these things, we will get some further insight. We'll get past the veil a little bit. We'll get some understanding. And there's evidence that backs them up. It's anecdotal evidence. It's not 
uh, evidence that can be proved empirically. But there is evidence that you can see a little bit beyond the veil. And so that's why they do it. But as to why these particular things are linked to actually greater insight, nobody knows why that is. And this is just the way our world is, isn't it? You know, I see commercials on TV all the time. They'll be advertised, well, we've got this uh, opioid thing, we've got this new drug out here. And they don't really know why the drug does what it does, but there seems to be some link between a symptom gain relief, some kind of illness, and then the use of that drug. They don't know why the drug does it, but they yeah. prescribe it because it does it anyhow, even though they don't know why. Well, that's what magic is, too. You don't really know why it works, but it does work, and that's why they're out there. They're looking for curiosity. You mentioned you're a curious person yourself. Yeah. You know, so they're curious like that, too. They're not going to leave up their salvation or their spiritual insights, or whatever you want to call it. They're not going to leave it up to a third person who may be an uh, imperfect, uh, an imperfect, very flawed human being. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, practicing magic then, that makes perfect sense, because you hear the people, I mean, I've always said the same thing about practicing medicine. I've, I've said that doctors and whatnot, they practice medicine because they're practicing. They're not, they don't really know it. <laughs> they're just practicing they, it, right? They and, used to call them witch doctors, but you know, the operative word is witch. Yeah, <laughs> but, this, but this idea of practicing magic, it correlates the same way. With respect to magic, though, you're practicing magic because a lot of people who practice magic, they, they're still trying to understand it themselves. I find that fascinating, that idea, because it, it, it does tie into the real world here. Amber? I was just going to say a definition of magic that I like is just focused intention. So when someone does spell work, and let's say you want to do a prosperity spell, you focus all of your intention on that prosperity. You're putting all your thoughts for the week on that fact that you want to gain some prosperity and bring it to you. And with these tools being goofy, the tools are just there to help you focus that intention to put it out there now whether that's kind of new agey to think that you're going to use these tools or do this spell and it's going to bring something to you there's still something said about focusing your intention on something to achieve a goal and whether you do that with ma magic or whatever else you choose it's still i think a viable real thing okay because everything's in the mind anyway yeah yeah you don't you don't need any tools at all you know a well-trained magician can do it all with just tools they conjure up themselves i'm coming out with a grimoire where I'm going to, so a lot of people have asked me to put my money where my mouth is because I talk a lot about Lovecraft and about magic. And they say, well, what do you got for, you know, what kind of rituals do you have? So I've got a whole series of rituals. And the rituals that I have, they're very unconventional because my view of magic, and Amber Rose was just talking about this there, it, the power of the mind is vast. And we understand that what actually changes things are changed in perception. I talked about those different layers of perception that we have at the subatomic level. Think about that for a minute. She's talking about like evoking prosperity, right? Say that I do a magical ritual for some very low purpose, like, like I want a girlfriend. There's this girl in school and I want her to be my girlfriend, so I do a magical ritual, right? Mm -hmm. Now it seems kind of silly. There's no link between the use of magic, the tools I'm using, and me actually gaining an alternative like that in the real world. But think about that for a minute. We have different levels of being different dimensions, different uh, perceptions, right? So somewhere in the universe, there's a reality, and it's only a fleeting reality. There's a reality where I'm actually with this girl. It's an alternate dimension, an alternate life, right? So what you do is you learn how to use these tools so you alter your perception a little bit, and then suddenly in that altered perception, you have the object that you want. And then more likely than that, not, that is actually reified or that happens in a world that you know as well. But I can't account for why that is, why that is. But yeah, you can yeah. actually make that happen 
just by altering your perception a little bit. Okay. And what I found for long magical usage, I've never had to use magic in the last 20 years for any kind of low purpose or anything. What happens is the universe seems to arrange itself to actually give me as much luck and to pave the way for me as easily as possible so that I can pursue the more important aspects of magic, which are basically higher knowledge and higher power. John, can I ask you a question? I, I want to ask yeah, you. I hope so. I'm, I'm on your show. <laughs> I'm on your show. Yes, please. He's at our mercy. Yeah, no. Do you believe in coincidence? I know this is kind of, a, I'm, we're going to go in the weeds probably as a result of this, but do you believe that they're in coincidence? I sure do. I, I believe in everything. Okay. I believe in everything. The only things I don't like are things that are being used to justify negative things. I don't believe in that. A lot of times people will use coincidences and other things to justify negative things or things that are just mistakes, and I don't believe in that so much. But I don't mind it as long as it doesn't hurt it. Yeah. But what no. about, about coincidences? I believe in everything. Well, yeah, the reason I ask is, you know, you're talking about, you know, you said something that really, really struck a chord with me, and that is that you find that the universe sometimes is, well, a lot of times will just naturally. Yeah. It's a coincidence that the girl became my girlfriend, right? Well, no, 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 no. I did the no. magical ritual. It actually is a coincidence. Suddenly she's my girlfriend. Is that kind of like what triggered that question? No, not at all. No. Well, the reason I'm getting, I'm getting to that is, you know, you said the universe does have a way of, of, of arranging things, right? Um, I've had this thing with the, the idea of synchronicity for years now. I've had I've had an obsession with the idea of synchronicity. I'm sure you know what what synchronicity is. Um, one of the things they say that, that that Jung said with synchronicity is that there are no coincidences. Um, you have, and I could be I could be going off the, the reservation on this a little bit. Um, you do choose paths though, right? But really, there. What what my point basically is is that. What I think about synchronicity a lot or these idea of how the universe does do what we're talking about here, do, arranging itself in a certain way, well, that's it, I guess it's a coping mechanism. <laughs> I don't know any other way to say it because I'm sure you have these days, John, where, you know, just things are going really bad. You have bad days. Bad things happen to people all the time, right? And these things happen, and my, my initial reaction is always, grip my teeth and go nuts and scream and yell and do all kinds of things. But what calms me down um, always is, okay, look, this, this bad thing happened for a reason. Um, and there's a lot of reasons this, this happened. So you need to grow from this, learn from this. And I always find things seem to work out. And like you're saying, the universe always does seem to realign and make things right. Do you follow where I'm going with this, John? I'm yeah, sorry you, if I'm can't, going... you can't take a statement like that that I say like uh, literally because I don't really mean it in a way that somebody, if I said like the universe is kind of smoothing the way for me, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't view the universe as, see here, we're, we're back to the persona that fine. Most people, they hear that, they say, oh boy, he's got a real uh, high opinion of himself. The whole universe is worried about what he's doing and trying to smooth things for him. But don't you see that that's personifying the universe? That's like turning the universe into some big paternalistic thing and then me exalting my consciousness and myself so that I'm actually worthy to receive the paternalistic benefits of the universe. Yeah. So right there, even uh, viewing it that way is a symptom of a kind of a faulty perception. And me wording that way myself, that's basically part of my imper 
imperfect perception as well because that's not really what's happening at all. What's happening is a coincidence. It's really not a coincidence, but we really can't determine that either, whether it's a coincidence or not. All we have when we get down to the ultimate thing is different perceptions. Yeah, yeah. And all, and all a magician asks is this, you know, like I never insist upon that. Like I've had people, I've actually accomplished some interesting results, and then people say, well, that's just a coincidence, right? I could care less what you call. You could call it a pink elephant if you want. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care what you call it. a person is actually practicing these kinds of things, and they got their mind to a level where they can kind of change their perceptions. They don't care what you call. It. All they care about is the results. Like I'm sitting in this room right now. It's kind of a kind of a dark room, right? Yeah. If I walk over to that light switch and turn that light on, suddenly it's going to be lit up. Right now, I know absolutely nothing about electricity. I know there are wires. I know there are circuit breaks. I know that when the electricity is down, people have to come out with trucks and climb up in poles and stuff. I don't know anything <laughs> about how to do that. But you know what? I don't need to know anything about that. The people will come and take care of that. All I care about is when I walk up to that switch and turn it on, the lights come on. And most magicians are like that too. I don't care what happens. If I use a magical ritual to get a girl and then I have the girl, good, I've got the girl, but I don't care how it happens. You could say, well, it's coincidence. You could say God gave her to me. You could say that she was using magic to become my girlfriend. Or whatever you want to say, that's fine. I got the girl. Yeah. I, I just, that's really, God, it's, I'm trying to wrap my mind around these ideas because I'm finding all this stuff so intriguing um, and powerful, too. I, I didn't expect us to go this way, <laughs> which is a good well, thing. I think this is great. Well, to well bring we, can, it, we can go any direction you I, want. No, I'm cool with this. This is great. Well, no, I was just going to say, though, I have a question to bring it back to Lovecraft a bit. Was Lovecraft into drugs? No. Lovecraft did not drink. He did not smoke. He tended to look down on people that drank and smoked. He was very prudish when it came to sexual behavior. He didn't like it when some members of his circle were kind of like more sexually oriented, like would like to meet different girls and stuff. Uh, so he was a very prudish kind of Puritan sort of guy. He didn't use drugs at all. Everything about Lovecraft is pure Lovecraft. You know, when you get these weird visions, these weird dreams, and then this beautifully written prose, and it is beautifully written prose. Yes. Yeah, got all that stuff, and it's just totally clean. You know, and that's an argument for me. Like when you do magic, you do not need to use drugs. But you do not to do drugs are just an illusion. What they do is they shut off aspects of your brain, and then they delude you into thinking that. You're thinking differently because parts of your brain have been shut off. But you need your brain fully open. You need to be accessing all aspects of your brain when you do magic. You need to do it stone cold sober. I don't know if I read this in the beginning of your book in the preface or not, but there was something I came across that said, and I don't know if this is historical fact, that Lovecraft didn't want to dabble with drugs because he was scared it would heighten his yeah. bad dreams or change or, yeah. or bring things out even more than... Uh, I'm a scholar of Lovecraft. I read all of his letters and he wrote a ton of letters. He wrote more letters than most literary figures. I read all five volumes of Never says that once. Okay. He was never afraid of drugs. drugs. He just thought that they impaired people and he thought they weren't healthy for people. But he was never worried about anything. Like he never wanted to tone his mind down. Okay. He was a very... Uh, he, he was worried a little bit about one thing, you know. Uh, his um, father had actually developed a form of paresis, which is a paralysis due to, apparently, he developed syphilis or pituitary yeah, syphilis. syphilis. And so he ended up in a mental institution. Then Lovecraft's mother started acting odd, too, before Lovecraft died. She started seeing things, and then she had to be institutionalized, too. I think he, in the back of his mind, he always worried that 
he might have some kind of strain like that in his DNA that might actually lead to repercussions. But happily enough, he died at a young age from, uh, you know, cancer. So he's, you know, he's fine. <laughs> so he escaped any kind of mental debilitation or Alzheimer's or uh, any kind of more serious mental things. But he was yeah, a little yeah. concerned about that. Yeah, I don't blame him. <laughs> that kind of stuff freaks me out when it runs in the family. I think it freaks everyone out. Um, it's I get frustrated with people like Lovecraft because you feel bad for them because they died penniless and relatively unfamous at their time. And now if they were to come back to life and look at what kind of legacy they left behind, I mean, it would be mind-boggling to them. Yeah, he was. Uh, he died pretty penniless. You know, he was uh, existing basically in the income from his stories. He was only getting published in Weird Tales magazines and a couple other ones, and the payments weren't always good there. He could never get off his butt and get a decent job. I mean, he was he had all sorts of imperfections, personality disorders and imperfections, so he never graduated from high school, and he was always ashamed of that fact his entire life. But he never graduated from high school. His nerves were all shot back then, so he didn't complete his thing. He always wanted to become like a, a high school uh, teacher, a science teacher. So he wanted to get a college degree, study astronomy, and then become a high school teacher. And yeah. he probably would have, he would have had a happier life if he did that. A lot of people say, yeah, well, it's a shame he didn't do that, but I could care less. I don't care if he made all the worst decisions in the world, he died penniless. All I care about, and I've got a book of Lovecraft's tales right here in my hand, that's all I care about. So suffer all day long, Lovecraft. You know, he gave us these wonderful things. He managed to, his name managed to survive the test of time. He would have been very pleased if he could have had a little extra money in his pocket with all this popular cultural embracing of his works right now. He would have been very comfortable and happy about that. I'm certainly not going to criticize it because if he became that teacher that we were talking about in high school, he might not have written one word. No, he no, may have just been a company. He may have just been a career man, and that would have been it. And there's coincidence yeah, again. <laughs> and then my beautiful book here. Yeah, right, you're right. Really get, you should get a copy of this book. It's just so beautiful. I'm holding it in my hand. The, co <laughs> yeah. the cover's beautiful. This beautiful book would not, not be in existence right now if there was no Lovecraft. I can't write a book, H.P. Lovecraft and Black Magical Tradition, if there's no Lovecraft. No, and, and that's so, and that's that that idea right there is so true. I mean, like like we just said. I mean, perhaps. If there was one moment in time here with H.P. Lovecraft where he did take the right side instead of the left side and he became a teacher, he, you know, he graduated from school, there were, there were these little things that may have happened that changed his direction in life, his path, and he just became a teacher. He may be just one name in some yearbook now buried in some tome, and that would have been the end of it, right? Um, That's right. But he took a different route. And he wrote all these amazing stories that I see, like I said, I said a little while ago, you can see Lovecraft's fingerprint on so I can't I can't well, overstate okay. that enough. So that was my point. I kind of said earlier that you were you were getting your point across. But just yeah, to quickly yeah. say this, when yeah. we were watching on YouTube, that really cool documentary about yeah, Lovecraft, yeah. who are the people they're interviewing? Well, John, John Carpenter, Carpenter, Guillermo del Toro, Neil Gaiman, Neil Gaiman, yeah. who are all prolific writers and creators of awesome movies. And in fact, that del Toro just won best director and best movie for this year mm -hmm. says something that he's heavily influenced by people like Lovecraft. Well, yeah, um, his influence obviously is just I, I really can't, in my opinion, just from my observations, it, it really can't be overstated. Right. 
Um, so oh, it's immense. I mean, it's immense when you think about not just yeah. popular culture, not just the cinema or movies or TV and stuff like that, but Lovecraft right now, uh, there's a, a guy named uh, Colavito who wrote a book, Cult of Alien Gods. He argues that Lovecraft's works were actually the foundation and the trigger for the extraterrestrial phenomenon, the UFO phenomenon. There is a philosopher right now who teaches in Egypt. Uh, he teaches philosophy. And he, okay. he wrote a book called Weird Realism and Lovecraft. And he argues that Lovecraft has a significant influence on something called speculative realism, which is an actual philosophical school. And he's actually had a very important influence on and, uh, existentialists like Martin Heidegger and also people like Edmund Herschel and Picasso. And they're a pivotal, he's a pivotal figure in the realms of higher art and in the higher realms of philosophy, too. So Lovecraft is not just a weird tales writer. And he spawned, of course, the Cthulhu mythos. So he spawned a whole genre of literature. Even Edgar Allan Poe didn't do that. You know, so he spawned a whole genre of literature. And then, like we said, popular culture, the movies, the films, the games. So, you know, Lovecraft has had an immense influence on Western culture in general. And I've joked to some people that Lovecraft, should actually receive a Nobel Prize in literature for his influence on Western culture. I don't think people are going to be breaking down the doors to see that happen. <laughs> well, you mentioned you mentioned the Cthulhu mythos, um, and that's one thing that we, we you know we find interesting too. Um, we've you know they basically yeah Lovecraft is referred to as Cthulhu mythos, right? So yes. and I that's I can't get that. That's one thing we were, we were talking about today is how you you pronounce Cthulhu. Which they say is not the proper pronunciation. Um, it's like Cthulhu. Cthulhu. Yeah, Cthulhu. Something, yeah, something like that. Um, <laughs> but most of, I mean, most of his stories don't really have anything to do with, with Cthulhu, the great old one, right? Um, yeah, they, they really don't. They don't. And also the pronunciation, it's not meant to be pronounceable by human vocal cords. When yeah. you do a magical ritual for Cthulhu, and there's one in that LeVay book you were talking about called Cthulhu. Uh, what you do is you vibrate. You vibrate each syllable of it, and then it sounds completely different. But it's not meant to be spoken by human. But again, you know, Lovecraft wasn't a human-centric kind of guy. Why should his entities look the way his entities do? Why should they be pronounceable? I mean, they're not things that are conceived in the minds of man. They're past that veil that we were talking about. In reference to Cthulhu, he only appears in one story. Yeah. Only one, The Call of Cthulhu, yes. Probably his most famous story, because most people that know absolutely nothing about Lovecraft, they know what Cthulhu is, and they've heard of Cthulhu. I mean, if you watch episodes of some of these cute cartoons that they have for for kids on, I forget some of the names. My daughter used to watch them, all those cute, those cute little kids. I can't remember all the names of them, but they have a lot <laughs> of cartoons where they actually make references to Lovecraft or to Cthulhu and stuff. So even little kids know, and you can get plush toys. Cthulhu, but it only appears in that one story, and Lovecraft himself did not refer to his mythos as the Cthulhu mythos. What happened was his very best friend, August Derlitt, who was also a Weird Tales writer, he actually named it the Cthulhu mythos after Lovecraft's death. Lovecraft called it like Yogg-Sothery, which he was referring to the god Yogg-Sothoth, so he called it Yogg-Sothery, and he kind of spoke of it in a kind of condescending way. He calls works kind of like Yogg-Sothery, you know, so... And he didn't actually divide them up into groups or anything like that. That all came later. But for some reason, uh, August Derlis' uh, coining of the phrase Cthulhu mythos stuck over time. And then they call it that. Now, now people like S.T. Josie, they, they hate 
uh, they hate August Derwin, and so they try to eliminate him from the mythos. And so uh, uh, Josie always likes to call it the Lovecraft mythos, you know. But I kind of like the Cthulhu mythos, so I'm going to keep calling it uh, "Screw, Screw Mr. Josie." <laughs> <laughs> it's a good name. There's nothing yeah, it's, wrong. It's a cool name. I mean, it's a name. We have to have a name for God's sake. We got no control of that. Whatever my your parents named you, that's your name, right? You should embrace that. You know, that's part of your history. Unless it's really, really bad. Yeah. You know, one thing about uh, H.P. Lovecraft also, um, it's one thing I, and that's one thing I am a little bit familiar with. There was, weaved within his works, um, there were, I mean, maybe not to his credit here, but there were ideas of bias and stereotyping and all the way over towards, like, prejudice and things like that. Um, I mean, you can, I, I think, I mean, if you can elaborate on this, I mean... I sure can. That's why I was laughing when I was talking about the Nobel. There's no way that's going to happen. Yeah, they tried yeah. to get him uh, indoctrinated into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, and they commissioned a bust of him, a sculpture. And it was really kind of, you know, sculptures never really look like the people they're supposed to look like. But yeah. it was kind of like a passable bust. At least if you looked at it, you wouldn't think it was Ray Bradbury or Isaac Asimov or anything. It was Lovecraft, but... They decided to pull that award because of Lovecraft's racism. And then S.T. Josie got all indignant about it. And he went down there and he took possession of the bus. They let him have the bus. And he got all indignant. He said, you, you people better never nominate me for anything because I won't accept it. You know, Which that kind of attitude doesn't really accomplish any purposes, does it? Other than make a person look a little silly, right? But in any case, he did that. But Lovecraft... Uh, this was a very thorny issue, and I'm going to clarify this right now. Okay. Lovecraft was a racist. There's no way around. Mm-hmm. He didn't think he was ever going to become popular at all or well-known, and so he didn't go back in his letters or he didn't call out, get get a hold of his friends where he wrote racist statements and say, hey, could you kind of like lose those letters or something? You know, could, could you kind of clean me up a little bit for posterity? Because he didn't think there was ever going to be any posterity. But Lovecraft was it racist, okay? He did not like uh, different races, blacks, Italians, Jewish people, Polish people. He didn't like them. What he especially was unable to do is he couldn't empathize with them. Now, this got a lot worse when he went to New York for a while. When he got married, he moved to New York for a few years. And he was living in places like the Red Hook area of uh, Brooklyn. And there were a lot of different cultural mixes there and he just didn't like the way they looked he didn't like the way they smelled he didn't like how noisy they were he didn't like anything about them and he just couldn't refrain from laying some of that racism seep into his stories like if you ever read the horror at red hook which i think he wrote in 1925 mm-hmm. he kind of conveys he, there he talks about a hidden cult down there in red hook uh, a cult and some white guys running the cult that's basically mostly aliens I don't know if they like the term alien, but I'm going to use it anyhow. They were members of the cult, and it's terrible. I mean, it's filled with all sorts of racist statements, and uh, it's just absolutely horrible. And you'll see the same kind of statements in some of his letters, and there's no way to justify it. Now, some no. of his fans tried to whitewash it. They'll say, well, Lovecraft wasn't really racist when he got to know people. And what they do, they'll point to his wife, Sonia Green, who was actually Jewish. And uh, yeah. they see he married a Jewish woman, so he can't be a racist. But that doesn't hold water in my book. You know, there's no excuse for the kind of terminology used. And when he was married to Sonia, he'd be out partying sometimes. Where the partying was just sitting around with a bunch of guys 
talking, having coffee, not getting drunk and going out to the bars. Every once in a while, he'd lose control there, too, and he'd do tirades against Jewish people. And his wife would have to say, you know, Howard, you know, I'm actually Jewish. Yeah. She'd have to call, call him back to reality. So he was a terrible, terrible racist. It bothers me a little bit. It's had a damning effect on his relationship. There are a lot of people that won't even read Lovecraft because of the racial system. But there's no way to, there's absolutely no way to get around it. I mean, I can't get around it. I admire Lovecraft's great intellect. I admire his profundity. I admire the uh, literary constructs that he created. I've written a whole book about him, but I'm not going to whitewash this guy. No. There's no way of getting around it. And I have to just simply acknowledge that. The way we have to acknowledge a lot of other great writers are racist too. Most people in the 1800s or early 1900s, they were racist too. You think Abraham Lincoln wasn't a racist? Abraham Lincoln, the only reason why he passed the Emancipation Proclamation it was just for political expediency. The country was torn apart during the Civil War. He wanted to bring everybody together. You think Lincoln thought the blacks and whites were equal? He certainly did not. Mm. None of those people felt that. When you know Thomas Jefferson, oh, you know, Thomas Jefferson was a great people. He freed his slaves. He sure did free his slaves. He freed his slaves after he was dead, so they couldn't wait on him anymore. Come on, <laughs> mm. these people were racist. Yeah. yeah. Okay? And we have to be willing. I'm not like these alt-left people that say, oh, we've got to purge these people from American history. We've got to take down monuments to Jefferson or to... Uh, we have to take down monuments to George Washington because yeah. they're all racist. We can't do that. We should be capable of looking at history objectively and impartially and assessing that and keeping the monuments up there and then looking at the flaws of their character. And you have to do that with Lovecraft, too, but it's had a really bad, bad well, influence. It's a, it, on it's a damning effect. That's obviously, is going to have a damning effect on his legacy, as, as you illustrated already. It's had a damning effect on his legacy. Um, and it is, I think, the the biggest black spot on, you know, on Lovecraft's on who he is as a person. I mean, it's his biggest, probably his hugest imperfection as far as uh, you know, as a, as a man, as a person, and even I, I think even as an artist also, because it did, as I said, weave its way into his art. Yeah, I just hope it doesn't get too damning, if you know what I mean. Because like I've got a second book that I'm shopping around now where I kind of explore Lovecraft's magical persona, and I do hit that character, the magical persona, is central to all of his work, so it's kind of like a literary criticism and kind of a new age book too. I'd like that to get published. My own publishing company, this Red Wheel here, which is the number one publishers of new age books, they're kind of shy about that book because it's kind of more literary criticism than new age. Yeah. Uh, but I'd like somebody to put that one out. And then my magical grimoire where I have rituals for conjuring, Lovecraft's great old ones. I kind of like that one to come out too. So I'm hoping that this damning effect won't be so damning that these books, that this book that I'm holding in my hand here is my last book on Lovecraft. You know, I hope that's not going to happen. Well, it could happen. It's scary because, I mean, to that point, John, um, the climate that we live in now, um, while I support a lot of these ideas were, you know, yeah, this racism thing is garbage. It's BS. But there are some very extreme things happening now. And, and it, you know, just, just this, what we're talking about, you know, just in regards to you doing another book on Lovecraft, um, it may be tough on you. <laughs> I don't know any other way to say that. Um, well, there's a lot of problem. You know, there's a lot of identity politics now, which is actually not about accusing. They use the word racism so much. Like if you agree with people on uh, you have a different view, like on global warming or abortion. They, you're labeled immediately racist. And a lot of times your opponents don't even want to talk to you. Yeah. They want to shout you down because they realize they haven't got any real arguments. I mean, there's no connection between 
being racist and believing in global warming or not believing in global warming. But they don't want anybody that disagrees with them, so they'll shove you down. So it's a very hotbed of political controversy. And I like Donald Trump, but Trump hasn't helped matters, you know, because he'll say anything that comes off the top of his head. And a lot of times it just only makes things worse, you know. So yeah, yeah. I don't know, you know. I mean, in this climate now, you know, Lovecraft is still holding his own and stuff. They're still making the movies and stuff. And my book is still presumably selling well, you know, but I don't know what direction it's going to No, it's, go. a, it's a different kind of time, uh, you know, and, you know, we didn't even get into the gender issue either. <laughs> I guess we can check. We can chat about that for a well, second too. As we, can yeah. we can certainly get into gender. Now, a lot of people said that Lovecraft had a very low opinion of women, and a lot of people in his yeah. time also had a low opinion on women. But the thing about Lovecraft was this: uh, he does have women as characters in his stories, but uh, it's kind of odd how he does this. Like usually, they're very powerful or they're magical practitioners in some way. He, he's not the kind of guy that writes a story where you've got a young, handsome guy and a young, beautiful woman, they meet and fall in love, and then they get involved in the Cthulhu mythos, but somehow it all turns out all right in the end, and then they have a yeah. bunch of babies. We don't see that in Lovecraft. That wasn't anything that he was interested in doing. So you don't have any virginal young maidens that are ripe for romantic love. You don't have any sexy, mature women. No matronly women bearing children. These women are very odd women. Like in The Thing on the Doorstep, which he wrote in 1933, mm -hmm. he does have an attractive woman in that. Her name is uh, Kazia Mason, and she marries a young man that's a magical practitioner. But you find out as the story progresses, first of all, she doesn't stay beautiful for very long. She starts to look really kind of uh, scary and spooky. And what you find out as the story progresses she's not really a woman at all. What she is, her father was a very notorious magical practitioner, as in weight, and he took possession of her body, and he would have taken possession of a body of a son if he had one, because he felt more magically proficient than women, but he, all he had was a daughter, so he took possession of her, yeah. kicked her out of her own body, and then he marries this guy, and then in addition to that, uh, they're also connected to the Innsmouth people, and so what that means when she turns about 30 or 40, she's going to turn into a different species altogether, a kind of half fish, half frog, half human kind of thing, and then take to the sea. So think about that character. Now, that's a major character. Uh, mm -hmm. And this this is a major woman, and what is this woman? I mean, she's beyond transgendered. She is not even a woman. She's an actual man in a woman's body. That's even more than just a transgender person. But on top of that, She's trans species. She's not even human, eventually. So what kind of a character is that? Yeah, it's insane. You know I mean? It's insane. I mean, you, you want to talk about transgendered or gender rights and stuff. That is really over the top, okay? He'll have other characters, like in the Dunwich War, he's got Lavinia Waitley, who was actually uh, related. She was a mother of Robert Waitley. And mm -hmm. she gave birth to two monsters. One of them they had to keep in the attic because he was just so totally out there, you couldn't even see him. The other was Wilbur Waitley, and he could walk around if he wore clothes buttoned up to his neck and stuff, because on the lower parts of his body, he was weird too, you know, he was out there basically. So they all shared the same traits, more or less, with their father, Yogg Sothoff, and what happened, Lavinia Waitley went up on the hill there with her, grand, her father, and she allowed herself to be raped by a gigantic, other god, you know. So yeah. this is these are the kinds of women that appear in Lovecraft's works. And a lot of people say, well, Lovecraft 
had a low opinion of women and gender, and that's why he portrayed women that way. He did nothing of the sort. He portrayed them that way is because he was scared to death of women. He was scared to death. And there are a lot of men that are scared to death of women, too. They think women, a lot of men get really jealous of the fact that women can give birth. They can't. I can't give birth. You can't give birth. Averroes can give birth. And some of them get upset by that fact. Because God, that gives them a, a, a kind of some input into immortality. At least they can keep the race going. They kind of, Bradbury, Ray Bradbury said, men often get jealous because women are nesting in time. The fact that they can give birth. They're nesting in time. A lot of men get real bitter about that. And when they get older and their sexual attractiveness leaves them, and women still can produce babies, and they can still nest in time, they get very, very, very bitter. And this can lead to midlife crisis and all sorts of nonsense, too. I have a feeling that Lovecraft was a little bit scared of women, and he was scared that they might be in touch with powers that he didn't quite understand. Uh, a lot yeah. of feminist writers like Camille Paglia in Sexual Persona, she writes about how women are allied with like the demonic, the unconsciousness, emotion, chaos, art, those kind of archetypes. Yeah. So I think there was a, that kind of element of Lovecraft's writing, and that's why he associated women. With, but these women are characters, yeah. and the women are a lot more powerful than the men, like in The Thing at the Doorstep. Uh, Kezia Mason dominates her husband. She tries to take possession of his body, and she succeeds for a little while. In other ones, like the dreams in the witch house, you've got an old witch there that is so powerful that she's mastered the quantum universe. She's mastered space and time, and she can pull the main character out of this time-space continuum into other time-space continuums. So these are very, very powerful women. So you have to kind of read a little bit closer. They're not attractive women. You don't want to have sex with Kezia Mason, or you don't want to, you don't want to have sex with Asenith Waite, you know. But yeah. you know these are, are very powerful women, you know. So you have to look twice. At them. John, do you have a particular favorite story? People always ask me that, and you know the funny thing about Lovecraft. I think we're talking about Cthulhu mythos, right? And people say, oh, it's all the same thing. All the gods trying to get back in. If you read those stories closely, Lovecraft never repeats himself. Each story is absolutely different. None, not, no one story is a sequel to another story. He does something one way, one way only, he moves on, and then there seems to be a common theme to all the stories. So I like almost every story that he wrote after uh, 1926. That was a call of Cthulhu. Everything that he wrote after that were perfect stories, and I usually reread every single one of those stories every year. If I have to get pinned down to favorite stories, There'll be stories that are more magical, I'm told, like the Dunwich Horror and the Dreams in the Witch House. Those are my probably my two favorites. I think my favorite is The Color Out of Space. Oh, that one's great. You know, when I was a little kid, I was in grade school, and I had gone to the... I used to do a lot of reading when I was in grade school. I used to read things like Famous Monsters of Filmland, because I grew up in the late, in the 50, late 50s and 60s. And I, I always liked reading horror, fiction, fantasies, and uh, ghost stories. But I went to the bookstore one time. I saw this paperback called The Color Out of Space and Other Stories. It had a really lurid cover, like a red skull on the cover with flames around. So I just bought the book because of that cover. And so I read the title story later that afternoon. Now, it was a beautiful day. That was a beautiful summer day. And I was sitting out there in the schoolyard reading the story. And this is one of the few stories I ever read in my life where I felt chills going up and down my spine. Absolutely Tear, sounds like a bunch of horses let loose in the studio. Uh, the, the, it was running up and down my spine, these chills, 
And uh, I'd never had that experience before. I mean, that's a completely chilling story. And a lot of people argue that's the most science fiction story that Lovecraft wrote. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think so, too, because that one has, like, a basis in fact, sort of. Like, if you think about this, like, the story is about a meteor hitting and leaving this lasting impact where everything's kind of, the animals are mutated, the plants grow large, but they're disgusting, and the people, like, go insane. Um, I think this threat from space has always been a fear, and especially now, and even uh, when you're watching episodes of The Twilight Zone, that's always a big fear, the threat from space. So well, even you know, Lovecraft is exploring you know, that. It's interesting, the interesting thing about that, though, when you think about, like, he never explains what happened. It came from out there, it went back at the end. Remember, it all pulled itself back into a little hole in space. So it was outside of that veil that we were talking about. So, so it came from there. It went back. You never really know why it did it. But think about the existential threat there, right? It's gone. It pulled itself away. But it left this area around that farm that was named Gardner's Farm. Farm, And they all drank the water. So they all kind of turned to these crumbling grayish kind of things. And then they all end up going back into the well and becoming part of it. But at the end of the story, they're putting this reservoir. They're digging up the blasted heath, and they're going to, it's going to be water supply, right? But think about that for a minute. That blasted heath keeps widening at the end of the story. It keeps getting larger and larger. Now, over time, if that gets so large, it could encompass the entire world and wipe it out entirely. So there's the existential threat right there. It's just kind of a long duration existential threat. It probably won't happen before the sun goes supernova 10 billion years from now, but who knows? Yeah. You know, so there's the existential threat. But look wait, how cleverly Lovecraft did that at the end. They filled it with water. And remember, Nahum Gardner's family, they started mutating because they were drinking the water. And what do they do? Arkham City's putting their whole water reservoir on top of the blasted heath. That means people in Arkham are going to be drinking from that well, too. I mean, what a story. Yeah. yeah. Very it's, clever. That's a cool one. Very clever. But that's why, you know, I, I, I don't, there's a lot we can go into with that. But that's the reason I think people should, you know, despite whatever the shortcomings there are, right, uh, with, with the man, the, there is the body of work. And I think that's really, at the end of the day, what shine, outshines anything is this body of work that was all this stuff that Lovecraft did, uh, like these stories we're talking about. Uh, and I think that is the reason that people should go and spend time with with this work. I mean, I know I have. I know Amber has. Obviously, you have, John. Uh, and listen to these stories um, because a lot of things like you know, we we're talking about trans species and, you know, transgender well, and these ideas. And this is like. This, this is 100 years ago, for God's sake. <laughs> I know. I mean, Lovecraft anticipated a lot of the stuff right now, and I've read a lot of Cthulhu Mythos fiction because I have to keep my hand in, so to speak, but uh, there's nothing in the current type of mythos literature that even comes close to the profundity and the sophistication of Lovecraft's works. Nothing whatsoever. And in fact, there's a deplorable tendency to view Lovecraft's entities as monsters, just simply monsters, and then you personify them the way humans do monsters. But uh, yeah. he's out sophisticated all of them, and he's actually predicting and things that quantum physicists are finding out right now. Remember when he was writing, quantum physics was just getting started. They didn't have things like super string theory or any of the kind of theories they have now. But yeah. all that's actually latent in Lovecraft. You can see it all in there. So he was actually very profound. His mind was so profound that it's still his thoughts and his insights are still relevant today. With yeah. regard to the beyond the wall of sleep. That one a lot of occultists like because 
he's, he's got like a character that's actually gained outside of the body. And it's kind of like astral mm-hmm. traveling. Yeah, astral like. projection. That, that astral be, yeah. That's a what lot of magicians like that, but it, and I actually end my book with a quote from Beyond the Wall Street, and I'll just read one thing about it. He says, how little, how little does the earth self know of life and its, its extent? How little indeed ought it to know for its own tranquility? And so Lovecraft is saying, we can't really see beyond the wall of sleep. The wall of sleep is like a veil of perception that clouds what we see, what objects that we can experience and stuff. But the more we know, the less tranquil we should be. And that story that Amber Rose was talking about, something coming out of space, going back, and then still leaving behind an existential threat to the planet. I would say that that actually violates and bothers our tranquility just a little bit. Just a little. <laughs> Just a little. Just a little bit. Inch by inch. Ghostly talk. <laughs> 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 <laughs>